Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Federal Reserve is confronting inflation with the biggest rate hike in decades. We look into what this could mean for you. Senators introduce a bill that would ban oil exports to China. Proponents of the bill say American consumers should have priority before a genocidal regime. The U.S. Navy has fired its seventh leader in two weeks. The Navy has not given details on any of the firings, but says they relate to a loss of confidence. The debate over preventing mass shootings rages on as the Senate looks for a solution. We bring you analysis on a gun control proposal in terms of lobbying, due process, and whether it's a state or federal issue. The Federal Reserve has unveiled its largest interest rate hike in nearly 30 years. The goal is to tackle inflation and get the American economy back on track. And today's Jessica Beatty has more on what it means for you, the consumer. With prices surging and Americans struggling to keep up, the Fed's moving faster to try to fight inflation, raising interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point, its biggest hike in nearly three decades. We at the Fed understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. We're strongly committed to bringing inflation back down, and we're moving expeditiously to do so. The rate hike comes after May's hotter-than-expected inflation report. They're behind the curve. They know it. And the only way they're going to get there is by taking these larger steps. Greg McBride is a chief financial analyst at Bankrate.com. He says higher rates mean borrowers will be facing ballooning costs especially around variable rate debts and credit cards. One bright spot is for savers. Now that rates are rising, savers will benefit because they'll receive more interest on their funds. But McBride says you have to look at the right place. A lot of banks are sitting on a pile of deposits, and so they're not passing along meaningful increases. Instead, look at online banks, smaller community banks and credit unions. That's where you're seeing more intense competition for savings and certificates of deposit. But he warns interest rates are still well below the rate of inflation. It's going to be a long journey. We need to see interest rates go up quite a bit, and we need to see inflation come way down before it turns the tables completely in favor of savers. McBride gave the Epic Times some other tips. He says make sure to pay down your debt, especially variable rate debt where you're most exposed to rising interest rates. He also says to boost your emergency savings, and keep your retirement plans intact instead of panicking. He says keep making your 401k contributions every month and don't divert from your intended investment mix. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The latest indication that the hot housing market is cooling. Some of the nation's largest real estate companies are laying off employees. Redfin says it's reducing its workforce by about 8%. The company says demand for its services in May was 17% below expectation. Meanwhile, Compass says it's cutting about 450 of its 4,500 employees. The company is also pausing hiring, expansion, and mergers and acquisitions until the end of 2022. These layoffs come as interest rates increase, causing home prices to go up. A bill that would ban U.S. oil exports to China was introduced by senators on Wednesday. The writers of the bill say it aims to ensure the U.S. does not aid and support a primary adversary. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott have introduced a new bill. It's called the China Oil Export Prohibition Act. It's an amendment to the Energy Policy and Conservation Act. 
The bill would prohibit oil and petroleum products produced in the U.S. to be exported to China. Those products would include crude oil, refined oil or refined oil products, residual fuel oil, or any other petroleum product other than natural gas or other natural gas liquid products. Rubio says it is unacceptable that the Biden administration is allowing half a million barrels of American oil to go to China every day. In his words, we need to increase American oil production and give priority to domestic consumers, not send oil to a genocidal regime half a world away. Senator Rick Scott says the Biden administration is tone deaf and doesn't understand the needs of American families. And the Biden administration has done nothing. They've done nothing to make sure we have more oil and gas drilling in this country. They've done nothing to get uh, you know, food prices lower. Scott says it's absurd to continue to export oil to communist China while Americans pay more than $5 per gallon for gas here at home. He says Americans must come before sales to communist China. President Joe Biden has called for U.S. oil refiners to produce more gasoline and diesel, saying their profits have tripled during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He says refineries are capitalizing on uncertainties caused by war. The president asked oil companies for near-term solutions in a letter on Wednesday. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called on refiners to act in a briefing Wednesday, saying it's a patriotic duty. We have done our part with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the one, uh, the, the one million uh, a day for the next six months, and so we need them to act. In response, the American Petroleum Institute issued a statement Wednesday saying the administration's misguided policies, transitioning away from domestic oil and natural gas, have compounded the problem. They urged the president to prioritize unlocking U.S. energy resources instead of increasing reliance on foreign sources. President Biden signed an executive order his first day in office, revoking the permit for the Keystone Pipeline and halting its construction in the U.S. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The United States and Mexico are working through disputes involving American companies in the Mexican energy sector worth tens of billions of dollars in investment. You're seeing a potential of, of over $30 billion of uh, United States business investment here in Mexico in the energy sector. And it includes renewable energy projects and other projects that are important for energy integration in North America, but also respecting the, the rule of law and creating a climate where U.S. businesses understand that they can invest safely here in Mexico. Ambassador Ken Salazar says the U.S. is making progress in resolving problems affecting U.S. businesses in Mexico. He says the proof will be in the pudding as to how many of them can be resolved under the current Mexican government. The Mexican president has moved aggressively to redraw energy sector rules. It's for the benefit of a state oil company and a public power utility. He argues that past governments skewed the market in favor of private capital. But this policy has put Mexico at odds with the U.S. and other top trading partners and is roughing a major corporate investors in the country. Salazar says Mexico knows it needs to integrate North America's economies and it knows it should encourage the nearshoring of manufacturing capacity. That's so it can break its reliance on China and elsewhere. The U.S. Navy has removed its seventh leader in two weeks. The Navy did not provide details about the removal, but said it was due to a loss of confidence. Commander Peter Lasaka was removed as commanding officer of the USS Preble on Tuesday. The Navy did not say where he was reassigned. 
In a statement, the Navy said commanding officers are, quote, expected to uphold the highest standards of responsibility, reliability, and leadership, and the Navy holds them accountable when they fall short of those standards. Masaka's naval biography shows he received the 2012 Vice Admiral Kihune Award for leadership. A year later, he received the John Paul Jones Award for inspirational leadership. He's also received numerous personal awards over the years from the Navy. He has served on six Navy ships. He became the Preble's commanding officer in October 2021. Next, we have an update about the debate about how to prevent mass shootings. Some experts say gun control measures don't have the numbers to back up the claim that they prevent crimes. Meanwhile, actor Matthew McConaughey has reportedly hired a team of lobbyists to push for stricter gun laws in Washington following the mass shooting in his hometown of Uvalde, Texas. We get some insight into this debate from the attorney known as America's Constitution Coach. Joining us now is Rick Green, who is the founder of the Patriot Academy. Thank you for coming on the show, Rick. Hey, good to be with you. Good morning. Absolutely. Now, what are the pros and cons of the framework for gun control measures that a bipartisan group of senators recently unveiled? Well, you know, the devil's in the details, so we don't know yet until we see the actual specifics that they're proposing. It's all hypothetical at this point and and conceptual, but I would say very few pros and a whole lot of cons. Nothing that they're proposing so far uh, that we've seen in the evidence actually saves lives. It's really taken the wrong approach, Uh, but there are cons. It's a very slippery slope. It gets rid of due process. Uh, There are already things in the law that allows you to deal with a mentally ill individual, to stop someone if you already have a sign, if they've actually threatened someone. So the things they're actually proposing, I think are bad ideas for the Constitution, and it's also bad for federalism, because the federal government shouldn't be doing this in the first place. This is a police power for state and local government. So Rick, you mentioned that the laws already provide the avenues to curtail these sort of problems that we're having in these mass shootings. Why aren't those being utilized? Well, too often uh, the, the threats are ignored. Too often uh, people, people don't want to deal with the situation. Schools ignore sometimes these threats. But here's the thing. Most people are trying to stop this on the front end, somehow know that somebody's going to do something a week from now, a month from now. The evidence shows you the only thing that actually saves lives in these situations is proximity to the mass murderer when they show up with someone that actually can put down the threat. In other words, when you have someone there that is armed and trained, they can stop the threat immediately in seconds, not minutes. Most all of these mass murderers, it's three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. I mean, Uvalde's an exception at an hour and 20 minutes. If you had had a sheepdog with a firearm, able and trained to stop the threat in seconds, then it would all the headlines would be like West Virginia. Remember what happened in West Virginia the day after Uvalde? Bad guy comes in, wants to kill 40 people with an AR, Sheepdog with a ponytail, this lady takes out her firearm and stops the threat in seconds. The only person dead that day was the bad guy that wanted to kill people. That's the way it should be. That's why we need more trained citizens with firearms to stop the threat. So in your view, are there any reasonable gun control measures that the Senate could consider that would save lives as well as protect the rights of law-abiding citizens? Well, no, first of all, from a constitutional perspective, it's not a federal job. This is not something in the Constitution given to the federal government. They're always inept when they try to implement these things. This should be done at the state and local level. And yes, at the state level, there are some things that you can do, but this is not a federal, uh, it should not be a federal responsibility. When they try to do things like 
let's take, for instance, the, all, all of the talk about uh, magazine capacities. Whenever they reduce magazine capacities, the only people that follow that law are the law-abiding citizens. So all you're doing is making it harder for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves when the crazy guy comes in. The crazed person that wants to kill as many people as possible, the dedicated killer, they're going to ignore all of these laws. And even if you stop them from getting a gun, they're going to use a car. You can kill just as many people with a vehicle just as fast, just like we saw in Wisconsin. Activists are hoping that if the Republicans do vote on a small-scale gun control measure, that this will break the gun lobby's hold on the GOP. What is your reaction to this? Well, I think when we say gun lobby, are we talking about citizens that want to defend themselves? If that's the case, then you're talking about hundreds of millions of citizens. Most people understand the right of self-defense, and I don't think they have a hold on either party. I think we see Republicans that are willing to do gun control, a few, very uh, small handful of Democrats, uh, willing to stand up for the Second Amendment. So hopefully we have people in both parties that are willing to stand up for the Constitution. I don't think any measure in Washington, D.C. is going to, quote, unquote, break the hold on either party. Rick Green, founder of the Patriot Academy, thank you so much for your analysis on this. You bet. Good to be with you. Given the recent mass shootings, many people are proposing ways to make schools and public spaces safer. A company in Arizona has been working on a special bulletproof vest they hope would prevent the loss of life in an active shooter situation. Here are the details. Arizona Fire Captain Kevin Goodman says his company, Escape Armor, exists for one reason, to prevent the loss of even a single child in a school shooting. He designed a bulletproof vest that easily fits into school backpacks so kids can have it with them at all times. So I formed Escape Armor to specifically develop a bulletproof vest that is uh, lightweight, compact, and it can just be deployed you know, um, just pulled out, put on an emergency, and then you can leave the bat, you know, whatever else you have, and just you can run, you can hide, or if you have to, you can fight, and it'll still give you some protection. It's not the first such product, but Goodman says his armor uses better materials. He demonstrated how well the vest works by firing several shots using a 9mm rifle, 9mm handgun, and 45 caliber handgun. These two hits here would have pierced right through my heart. Um, these on the on the my right side would have gone through my right lung and these lower ones over here uh, There's two hits here. These would have easily gone through my left side lung So yeah, I mean these would have basically the panel would have stopped all of these these hits from reaching vital organs um, And it would allow me at least to escape Goodman is a father of four children He says he just wants them to have every opportunity and every advantage they can to get away from an active shooter situation so if you can make a product that does that, he says it's worth it. It's so tragic that these things keep happening, and unfortunately, they, they're probably going to keep happening, and that's just the sad reality. So, you know, I'm trying to just make my product as, as available as I can and um, get it out there and, and just to give people just one other tool to try to protect their kids and their families. Escape Armor offers two different products, a foldable vest that comes in three sizes and a standalone shield that makes any backpack bulletproof. Coming up, extreme floods hit the Yellowstone region. Thousands of visitors had to evacuate from Yellowstone National Park and local infrastructure has been destroyed. And a California water district is using an ingenious device to prevent residents from using too much water during the state's historic drought. Find out more right here on NTD News.
Over 10,000 visitors had to evacuate from Yellowstone National Park. That's after extreme flooding hit the region earlier this week. Park officials say this is a thousand-year event. Here are the details. Above-average rainfall combined with sudden temperature spikes and a rapid melting of snow in the park's higher elevations caused the floods in and around Yellowstone National Park this week. The floods impacted not just the park itself, but also local communities near it, including Red Lodge, Montana. It hit here early in the, in the flood, and we thought we had it, and then a bridge went out and it diverted the creek, and the water started rolling in the back, broke out a basement window, started filling up my basement, and then I quit. It's like the water won. All park entrances and roads are temporarily closed, and the northern portion of the park is likely to remain closed for a substantial length of time because it's been severely damaged. The floods may forever alter Yellowstone's terrain, along with that of surrounding communities. U.S. Stormwatch said in a tweet, mudslides, rockslides, and flooding are wiping out roads and bridges across the region. Uh, we're just down here this morning getting it cleaned out, getting the basement unflooded, and then so she can move back in and claim. So um, we're just trying to keep everybody to at least get moved back in. Small towns on the edge of Yellowstone are scrambling to assist thousands of tourists evacuated from the national park. Hotels are filling up. The manager of the Motel 6 in Rexburg, Idaho, says they had 35 unexpected reservations in just one night alone. This is happening while the local communities deal with flooding of their own. Montana Governor Greg Gianforte declared a statewide disaster Tuesday. There was no place for food. Restaurants are closed. You can't do anything without water and electric. So we went up to the American Red Cross place. They had a generator and food. And again, this is stuff I see on TV. The floods hit at the beginning of Yellowstone's peak tourism season. This is the first time in 30 years that the park has been forced to close its gates to visitors during the summertime. So far, no injuries or deaths were reported. There is a major drought in Southern California, and the state is enforcing water restrictions. Residents may find that their sprinklers and outdoor watering devices no longer work. Here's more. Let's go. As an historic drought grips Southern California and water restrictions take effect, one water district is getting tough on usage violators by installing a device that reduces water supply at the source. We're in a drought emergency. The intent is not to be punitive. For David Peterson, the general manager of the Las Virginis Municipal Water District, it's a necessary intervention. So these flow restrictors are installed for customers who really are not paying attention to how they use water. And so the way this device will work when we put it in, it will actually allow the customer to still be able to use water inside their home, and that's water for cooking and bathing and cleaning and that kind of thing. But it will restrict the amount of water that they can use outdoors. In our area, outdoor water usage accounts for about 70% of all water usage. The flow restrictor device was developed on-site by engineers, led by senior field customer representative Kaysen Gilmer. This is the restrictor. It's pretty simple. It's just a disc with a hole in it. It's applied at the meter. And if you can imagine, our service line comes in to the beginning of the meter. Once the water passes through the meter, we will slide this restrictor in place in between the meter and the valve. And what it will do is this larger hole will then become a much smaller hole. After installation, the water flow is reduced from around 30 gallons per minute to just one gallon, enough to carry out household chores and personal hygiene, but not enough to operate sprinklers. Well, as you can imagine, there's, there's mixed reaction. Everybody uh, reacts a little bit differently, but actually it's been, um, 
It's been better than I would have expected. Calabasas homeowner Arthur Bender, who already replaced his lawn with drought-tolerant landscaping, is supportive. I think it's an outstanding idea. I don't really know how often it would be enforced, though the more the better. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't mind the idea of slapping somebody's wrist to get them to pay attention in class kind of thing. Since June 1st, the Metropolitan Water District has mandated some 6 million residents of Southern California to water their lawns and gardens no more than once a week. John Hinckley Jr. shot and wounded President Ronald Reagan in 1981. He was freed from court oversight on Wednesday. This officially concludes decades of supervision by legal and mental health professionals. The lifting of restrictions had been expected since late September. A U.S. District Court judge in Washington said he would free Hinckley on June 15th. That's if he continued to remain mentally stable in the Virginia community where he's lived since 2016. Hinckley was acquitted by reason of insanity and spent decades in a Washington mental hospital. Today, historians say Hinckley is someone who unintentionally helped build the Reagan legend and inspire a push for stricter gun control. An inmate's recent attack on a detention officer was caught on camera. It happened June 7th at a Florida detention center. Jail officials say Bridget Harvey attacked Deputy Lillian Jimenez from behind. Harvey attempted to choke Jimenez with a pillowcase. Jimenez was able to call for the emergency response team on her radio. Several other inmates also came to her aid and removed the pillowcase from around her neck. Jimenez suffered minor injuries. Harvey and a co-conspirator who helped her are facing assault charges. They were moved to solitary confinement along with two other inmates who allegedly played a role in the attack. Authorities say people have been caught at border entry points in El Paso, Texas, trying to smuggle fentanyl into the U.S. within their bodies. Customs and Border Protection officers say that in the three days to June 10th, they identified and stopped significant drug loads on a daily basis. The drugs include fentanyl, cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. The June 6th officers encountered an American woman with fentanyl inside her. She was identified at a border crossing by a canine who sniffed out the drugs concealed within her body. Almost a week later, a canine inspection at a border crossing found another American woman with fentanyl in a balloon inside her. A couple of days later, officers intercepted another American woman. She removed a bundle of fentanyl from inside her after it was detected in a pat-down. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, a federal safety probe finds numerous serious issues with Boston's mass transit system. Some of the issues have persisted for months. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration reports nearly 400 crashes involving vehicles with partially automated driver assist systems in 10 months. That figure includes 273 with Teslas. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. According to statistics released Wednesday by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, automakers reported nearly 400 crashes over a 10-month period, all of them involving vehicles with partially automated driver assist systems. Among the cars involved, 
273 were Teslas. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, cautioned against using the numbers to compare automakers, saying it didn't weigh them by the number of vehicles from each manufacturer that used the systems, or how many miles those vehicles traveled. Automakers reported crashes from July of last year through May 15th. Despite the data, some drivers were still comfortable with driver assist systems like Tesla's. To be honest, man, I love it. Uh, I think the autonomous features of the Tesla are great, man. Uh, especially for, uh, for long road trips or for commuting, you know, in and out of work or whatever the case may be. Tesla's crashes happened while vehicles were using autopilot, full self-driving, traffic-aware cruise control, or other driver assist systems. The company has about 830,000 vehicles with the systems on the road. Tesla advertises its driver assist features as autopilot or full self-driving, they are not fully self-driving, they're not fully autonomous driving vehicles at all. So they're only meant to assist your driving. The next closest car maker with reported crashes was Honda with 90. Honda says it has about 6 million vehicles on U.S. roads with these kind of systems. Subaru was next with 10. All other automakers reported five or fewer. But for some drivers, driver assist systems are a welcome feature. Oh, I think that they're a wonderful addition. I wish all cars had them uh, overall. They're, uh, they really reduce driver fatigue overall. Um, I use them uh, when it's stop and go traffic. And it's amazing how much easier it is. The NHTSA said six people were killed in the crashes involving driver assist systems, and five were seriously hurt. Five deaths occurred in Teslas, and one was reported by Ford. Three of the serious injuries were in Teslas, while Honda and Ford each reported one. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A federal safety probe found serious safety issues with Boston's T-Mass Transit System, and the Federal Transit Administration is ordering the agencies that oversee the system to fix them fast. It said the issues include overworked employees, an understaffed operations center, and a maintenance backlog. It also said some employees have not completed the required safety training. The federal agency pointed out that a key piece of repair equipment has not been working for at least eight months, and it noted there were six derailments last year and five runaway trains in the last 18 months. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority said it's developing immediate and long-term measures to address the concerns, and it said employee certification will be completed this week. Ford is recalling 2.9 million cars and SUVs that could roll away even when placed in park. The vehicles are the 2013 to 2019 Escape, 2013 to 2018 C-Max, 2013 to 2016 Fusion, and 2013 to 2021 Transit Connect. The transmission on the affected vehicles may not really be in the park position, even though the shifter indicates the vehicle is in park. The National Highway Safety Administration says drivers have left their vehicles only to have them roll forward. This increases the risk of injury or crash. The safety regulator says it received six reports of property damage and four reports of injuries potentially related to the problem, but no deaths. A similar problem with the 2015 Jeep Grand Cherokee caused the death of actor Anton Yelchin in 2016. That's when his vehicle rolled and pinned him against a brick structure. This is Ford's fifth recall over the issue since 2018. 
Lego is planning to spend more than $1 billion to build a factory in the United States. The company announced Wednesday plans for a 1.7 million square foot plant in Virginia. It will employ roughly 1,800 people once it's completed in 2025. It will be the Danish company's seventh global factory and second in North America. The other is located in Monterey, Mexico. Lego previously had a U.S. factory in Connecticut, but that facility closed in 2006 because the company said kids prefer playing with electronics. Times have changed, though. Like other toy makers, Lego is in the midst of a pandemic-induced boom as families look for entertainment at home. Building a factory in the U.S. also helps the company meet demand here, especially when supply chains are clogged and the cost to ship goods is surging amid record fuel prices. The company currently employs 2,600 people in the U.S. and has more than 100 shops. Still to come, many Russians appear to back the war in Ukraine. A mother whose son was killed fighting for Russia still supports President Vladimir Putin. And farmers in a region of Ukraine face the dilemma of trying to harvest crops in the middle of a war. Even driving a tractor across a field could be dangerous. Stay tuned for more right after this short break. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin confirms that the U.S. will send an additional $1 billion in military aid to Ukraine. In May, the U.S. Congress approved $40 billion to provide additional security assistance, economic and humanitarian support for Ukraine. And on June 1st, President Biden authorized an additional $700 million to meet Ukraine's critical needs for today's fight. And I'm especially pleased to be able to announce today that the United States will provide an additional $1 billion uh, security assistance package for Ukraine. Austin said the new aid package will include anti-ship missile launchers, howitzers, and artillery. At a two-day gathering of NATO defense ministers in Brussels, he said U.S. forces are training Ukrainian troops on how to use the equipment. The list included all key weapon systems Ukrainian leaders have urgently requested. Since the war began in late February, the U.S. has now committed about $5.6 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. Officials said that about one-third of the latest $1 billion will be from Presidential Drawdown Authority. That means the Pentagon will take weapons and equipment from its own stock and ship them to Ukraine. The remaining two-thirds would be equipment and weapons purchased from industry by the U.S. and then transferred to Ukraine. Spain's King Felipe on Wednesday attended a Flotex 22 naval exercise. It was organized by the Spanish Navy. Footage shows Spanish forces arriving at the beach as King Felipe oversees vessels carrying army tanks. 4,000 units from the Spanish Army and Air Force participated. Also involved were permanent NATO groups and units from the United States, United Kingdom and Belgium. That's in addition to units from the European Union Maritime Force. The Spanish Defense Ministry website says the Flotex 22 drills are to keep the Navy prepared for combat. This for, quote, the defense of Spain and its legitimate interests if necessary. At the end of June, Spain will host a NATO summit in Madrid. Farmers in Ukraine's Mykolaiv region face a dilemma. They need to harvest their sunflower and wheat crops, but how can they do this under Russian fire? Here's more on the story. 
Ukrainian farmers are struggling to export their goods following Russia's invasion of the country. Vladimir Onishuk owns a 2,000 hectare farm that ships its grains through Mykolaiv port. His wheat and sunflower crops are ready for harvest, but his farmers are afraid to drive their tractors over the remains of Russian munitions scattered in the fields. We have collected these in the fields on March 29th when we went out there. D-miners inspected the area because tractor operators would not work. They said, we will not go out to the fields until you collect the mines, bombs and other things. Russia's invasion, which it calls a special military operation, has put major pressure on Ukraine's grain exports. Bombs have damaged infrastructure, while key Black Sea ports have been blockaded meaning grain is leaving Ukraine at a much lower rate than usual. That's led to soaring prices, and Western countries have accused Russia of creating the risk of a global famine. 70% of our grain exports were through the seaports. In the past 30 years, many ports were built and reconstructed in the country's south for this purpose. But unfortunately, all of them are blockaded now, and many vessels have remained blockaded in the ports since February 24th. Ukraine said Monday its grain harvest would likely fall to around 48.5 million tonnes this year, down from 86 million a year before. With the challenges seen at sea ports, the country is largely trying to transport by road and rail. Efforts led by Turkey to negotiate a safe passage for grain stuck in the Black Sea ports have not yet produced a breakthrough. Saudi Arabia's energy minister made a surprise appearance at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum today. Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman was not listed on an official schedule, and many other guests avoided the annual event. Prince Abdulaziz held talks with Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak at the Economic Forum in Russia. After talks, Novak told reporters that Russia could continue cooperating within the OPEC Plus oil production agreement beyond 2022. The meeting between the two lasted for more than an hour. The meeting comes as Russia is pumping less oil than its current OPEC Plus quota calls for. That's after Western sanctions saw some buyers refuse or delay taking Russian oil. Russia's crude oil production rose slightly from April to May, and Novak promised to add more production next month. That's as Moscow finds strong demand from India and China. Last month, however, Russia was producing 1.2 million barrels per day less than its quota called for. This reduction led to speculation that Moscow might have been suspended from the OPEC Plus pact. Chinese state-owned media reports that Communist Party leader Xi Jinping has reaffirmed China's commitment to Russia. That was during a June 15th phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. According to the reports, Xi said the Chinese regime will support Russia over issues of sovereignty and security and deepen strategic coordination. He also said the Chinese Communist Party was ready to work jointly with Russia and promote engagement with developing nations to benefit the two countries. The growing alliance between the CCP and the Kremlin has been a growing concern to Western officials. Xi and Putin first announced a no-limits partnership on February 4th. The CCP has also come under fire for its apparent support of Russia throughout the ongoing war in Ukraine. U.S. intelligence leaders have said the CCP-Kremlin partnership will likely deepen in the coming decade. Officials say this new situation would have profound effects on geostrategy as the United States has never before faced two nuclear adversaries at the same time. 
many Russians still appear to back the government in a country where the media is largely controlled. A mother lost her 28-year-old son. He was killed fighting for Russia and Ukraine, but she still supports Russian President Vladimir Putin. Here are the details. Crimean Olga Drozhevkina's son was killed fighting for Russia in Ukraine five weeks after the conflict started. But despite her grief, she still has faith in Russian President Vladimir Putin and conviction that the West is stoking the ongoing conflict. A ceremony in the 28-year-old's memory, a plaque was unveiled on the wall of his house in Crimea, which Russia annexed from Ukraine in 2014. He took part in the parade on Red Square, took part in the parade in Simferopol and in Kirsch. They always valued him. He really loved the army and I fully support the army and the Russian president. And no matter what, they won't break us. Kina's stance highlights how many Russians perceive the war and the support which Putin, Russia's paramount leader since 1999, continues to garner. Western powers have criticized Moscow's invasion as an attempt to claim Ukrainian territory and prevent it turning towards the West. But at home, Putin's approval ratings soared after he ordered troops into Ukraine, according to Russian state pollsters. His latest approval rating stands at 80.8 percent, according to the Russian Public Opinion Research Center. Despite those numbers, anti-war protests were still held across Russia. In March, an independent protest monitoring group said more than 4,300 people were detained in demonstrations against Putin. Joshevkinas casts Russia's soldier as protectors fighting for peace and believes Russians and Ukrainians to be one people, a view shared by Putin. It's not anger. I don't know how to say it. I feel sorry for the Ukrainians. We shouldn't have allowed the thought into our heads that we were enemies. We're the same people. So I just feel sorry for them. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, the Green Tech Show in Amsterdam offers solutions for people in the plant industry. One robot can even check the position, ripeness, and quality of fruit. And FIFA will soon unveil the hosts for the 2026 World Cup. 22 candidate cities from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are vying for the spots. Which one will be victorious? Stay tuned for more right after this break. NASA's Mega Moon rocket is ready for its dress rehearsal. The space agency said Wednesday its Artemis I rocket will make another attempt at a final pre-launch test. During the test, the rocket will be placed on the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. NASA will then simulate every stage of a launch, but Artemis will not lift off during the test. NASA will use the test results to help determine when the unmanned rocket can launch for its mission beyond the moon. The pre-launch test is slated to happen on Saturday. This will be NASA's fourth attempt at the crucial test for the rocket. The others failed due to various leaks that have since been repaired. Once this mission gets off the ground, it will kick off NASA's Artemis program and potentially return humans to the moon. Harvesting delicate fruit is one of the most labor-intensive jobs farmers face. Now they might have the answer to their problems with high-tech solutions on show in the Netherlands. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. 
When it comes to what's new in the world of horticulture, people come here to Amsterdam. This is Green Tech, a show which has solutions for people in the plant industry. This robot called Barry is this year's showstopper, and it's the winner of this year's Green Tech Award. Barry is the creation of German company Organifarms. It checks the position, ripeness, and quality of the fruit before it plucks it. So this robot can harvest approximately 10 kilos an hour. Uh, a human does more, but the robot can work 24 hours, 7 days a week. So uh, through this, it can really compare to a human and harvest about the same amount, a little bit more. Then the robot places them directly into baskets, where they are weighed and ready for sale. According to Brown, the robot is about creating a better quality fruit, rather than producing cheaper fruit. Through this technology, we do not touch the fruit in the whole process, so it is not damaged. Uh, when you harvest it with the hand, it can happen that you get bruises. This does not happen with the robot, so it can also enhance the quality. The robot costs about $100,000. Brown claims a grower should get a return on their investment after three years, but it's not a solution for all farmers. Dutch company Createch is presenting a new robotic solution for warehousing plants in vertical storage. The benefit of robotic tray filling is that you can have multiple trays, multiple pots with the same tray filler. And previously this was one separate tray filler for every different variety. Verhoof says the space-saving vertical growing is a big trend in the horticultural industry. We use our experience from indoor growing to now also go vertical. And that's a trend that's really active right now. The show continues in Amsterdam until June 16th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Check this out. This could be how people fly the friendly skies in the future. This week, designer Alejandro Nunez Vicente showcased his Chase Lounge airplane seat concept at the 2022 Aircraft Interiors Expo in Germany. The prototype features a double-decker-style seating arrangement for airplanes. Flyers would access the top level using two ladder-like steps. Nunez Vicente says his frustration with the current lack of legroom gave him this idea. He believes this design offers plenty of legroom. It even has a footrest for added comfort. Nunez Vicente admits that passengers, especially those on the top level, cannot stand upright in the seats. But he argues many travelers already cannot stand when flying economy. The designer had to remove overhead cabins to create the top level. Instead, he says there is a space between the levels for travelers to store luggage. Soccer fans across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are awaiting an exciting moment. This afternoon in New York City, FIFA will announce the host cities for the World Cup 2026. Let's take a look at what areas are on the shortlist and which ones are expected to make the cut. 22 North American cities are vying for the right to stage the 2026 World Cup, a 48-team tournament co-hosted by three nations. FIFA is just about to unveil the winners. Many expect the United States to see 10 of its candidates on the final list. Boasting a new $5.5 billion SoFi Stadium, Los Angeles has a clear advantage. So does New York. Its joint bid with New Jersey is anchored by the MetLife Stadium, with a capacity of more than 80,000 people. Houston's size and proximity to Central and South America make it equally competitive. And Philadelphia says it plans to build fields if it's selected. Other contenders are Boston, Dallas, San Francisco, Orlando, and Washington, D.C. They were host cities of the 1994 World Cup. 
In Mexico, three candidate cities, Guadalajara, Mexico City, and Monterrey, are almost assured the gig. While looking north, Canada's Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto made enviable gains in the race. This will be the second time for the U.S., the first time for Canada, and the third time for Mexico to host the Games. According to a 2018 U.S. soccer study, the event could generate more than $5 billion in economic activity for North America. Coming up, we hear the story of an artist facing persecution for his beliefs. He says he's now on a mission to kindle justice in the hearts of his audience. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Every year, several groups of performers based in New York travel around the world with the mission of reviving the essence of Chinese culture through performing arts. However, this group of artists cannot perform in China. Our reporter, Jackie Rios, spoke with one of the artists, which might help us understand why this is the case. Let's take a look. The first year that I came to the United States, I watched Shen Yun in San Francisco. The moment the curtains went up, I thought, I want to be one of those performers. Actually, to me, being part of Shen Yun is a duty to revive traditional Chinese culture in the U.S. I feel that is an honor. It's a sacred job to me. In those pieces, do you get to perform? And what role do you play? I play the role of a police chief. I was born in China and have seen many police officers there. And because I've lived through it, you could say I have a bit more experience. How was your life growing up in China? My parents started practicing Falun Dafa in 1995. Because of that, my father quit smoking and drinking. His temper also became better, which made my family more harmonious. When the persecution began, my father was sent illegally to a labor camp for three years, and his remodeling business was forced to shut down. I was only one year old then. In April 2004, after sending me to nursery school, my father was illegally arrested again by four police officers and was sentenced to serve another three years in a labor camp. The police were also looking to persecute my mother, so she went on the run after she heard the news of my father's arrest. At the time, losing essentially both of my parents made me really depressed, so my uncle took me in. On January 17, 2005, the police arrested my mother and put her in a brainwashing camp. She went on a hunger strike for as long as seven months. She only took in liquids until her body couldn't bear it anymore, and then she was sent home in an emaciated state. That same year in August, my father was released as well. In 2013, my mother and I were able to leave China, come to the U.S., and begin a normal life. However, my father, who had been living under immense pressure for decades, passed away on September 4, 2017. What was different for you compared to China? What was the difference? There is a lot of freedom in the U.S. You can do the exercises freely outside, practice Falun Dafa without the police arresting or harassing you. 
You have no such environment in China. I remember I used to feel worried if my parents didn't come home by 8 or 9 o'clock. I would wonder if they were arrested again. When you got involved and you started doing these trainings, did you ever consider in thinking, can I really do this? In the beginning, it was pretty difficult because flexibility is a challenging aspect for me. I need to stretch all the time and endure a great amount of pain, day by day and year by year. In Shenyun, everyone works extremely hard. They wake up very early and go to bed very late. Everyone puts a lot of effort in studying dance, and we always help each other. If anyone has trouble with techniques or other issues, we all lend a hand. In Shenyun, everyone puts others before themselves. Actually, Shenyun has become a part of my life. Every day is filled with performances, dance rehearsals, and classes. If you could go back to China and Chen Yun could perform there, how would that make you feel? I would think that we are halfway to accomplishing our mission because then people can finally see traditional Chinese culture in China. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.